Hey everybody, this is Alex. Hey, it's Natasha. And we are here to talk just for a second about Extra Crunch TechCrunch's subscription product. Extra Crunch is where a lot of our best analysis and follow-up stories lives. We focus a lot on startups, building, and even poke fun here and there. It's true. I also write a daily column called The Exchange that's over on Extra Crunch. And the good news is, if you don't have EC access yet, we have a deal for you. Yes, you can use, I think, the best code there is. So don't tell anyone who doesn't listen to Equity because they're not invited. The code is equity, all caps, for 50% off your Extra Crunch subscription. So head over to techcrunch.com slash subscribe. Use that code. Make us look good internally. We say thanks across the internet. And now let's do a show. Hello and welcome back to Equity, TechCrunch's venture capital-focused podcast where we unpack the numbers behind the headlines. My name is Alex Wilhelm. It is Thursday afternoon. It is cold, but I am happy because I have two of my absolute favorites here, including Natasha Mascarenas. How are you doing? So happy we are close to this week ending, even though we're all working next week. It just feels right. Yeah, I don't even think I'm taking like Thanksgiving off because I'm not doing anything. So I might as well just sit at this desk instead of the couch, I guess. I don't know. Anyways, Danny, you're here too. How are you doing? I'm doing all right. I'm sweating from all these funding announcements. I, I feel like we need to stop covering the ones that do get funding and start covering the ones that don't. It's harder to cover a negative in that sense. Also, people won't tell us when they didn't raise. So it's hard to do that. But if you didn't raise a round and want us to talk about it, equitypod at techcrunch.com, let us know how you screwed it up. Okay. Look, guys, it was a really, really busy week. Like it was, it's been hectic. We've had a number of filings. We have a lot to get through. There's some big rounds. I want to start with the late stage stuff. That's okay. Dig into that. And then we'll kind of work our way backwards into some seed rounds and then also a new fund. And then at the very end, there is a Natasha special of some really interesting stuff to think about for the future over this weekend. So kicking off, a firm filed, which ended June 30. So now we're in there, I believe, 2021. The reason they do that is as a payments company, they're trying to kind of group the holiday season into one fiscal year. So they go from July 1st through the next year's June 30th, capturing all that November, December goodness in, in one calendar year. SaaS companies do this a lot, Danny, with uh, having their year end in January 31. That way their sales team's end of the year isn't December, which is a terrible month for selling things. So not super abnormal. Microsoft also has the same calendar that they do, but it's annoying but Natasha, if we look at the most recent quarter, the September 30th, so the calendar Q3, their fiscal Q1, we saw their revenue growth actually go a little bit faster and their net losses really decline. So in my read is that this is a company that is showing not only strength as it goes public, but also like maybe even a path to profitability. Is that a fair read? Yeah. I mean, they did turn a profit in one quarter. I think that that is something that they kind of did mention in the S1, didn't put too much attention to. The real story with Affirm that people are joking about, but you know, I think we should take seriously is the Peloton bump. They announced in their S1 that that's kind of their top merchant. And more interestingly, it represented approximately 28% of its total revenue for the 2020 fiscal year and 30% of the total revenue for the period you just mentioned, Alex, the three months ending in September 30th, 2020. It's not good that its biggest merchant is something that is benefiting from the coronavirus. <laughs> Well, I think, you know, I'm sweating from all these funding announcements, but look, if I was affirmed, I would be sweating bullets that the sweat <laughs> machine that is its payments uh, revenue giant, I mean, almost a third of the revenue. I mean, can you imagine how much money? This is? I mean, first of all, I think part of the answer is because I've seen a firm on, on some e-commerce sites 
is just the ticket price, right? Pelotons are expensive. So if yes, you're going to take out a loan on something, uh, you know, I, I, I was trying to buy bed sheets for 60 bucks and they were like, you can pay two bucks a month with a firm. Uh, and I was like, I don't know why I would do that. That doesn't make any <laughs> sense. But like when you're spending thousands of dollars on a bike, it makes sense. So it does drive that ticket price drives payments. But what a huge risk for the company. And if you think about the leverage that Peloton has to lower rates, to yes. pay less fees, what a kind of tough position for a firm to be in. We've seen historical examples of this. If you go back to Twilio, we all recall what happened when Uber moved away from Twilio, blowing a hole in its growth, costing it a couple of quarters of lost value. It was pretty embarrassing for the business overall. And then even more recently, we've seen Fastly, uh, which is a bit like Cloudflare. It's kind of one of those online CDNs, gets your crap around the world's internet. They were big with TikTok. I think it was 12% of their H1 revenues. And then, of course, when Trump originally was going to block TikTok, force a sale, steal some of the money, and then decided not to or whatever, I don't know. Uh, that thing uh, really put them at risk with the TikTok revenue because they were going to move to Oracle. It's a, it's a whole thing. But anyways, single customer revenue concentration risk really, really matters. And there's recent examples of this. So I'm curious to see what impact the Peloton issue will have on a firm. But also, as we've seen from the recent COVID numbers, and this is sad to say, it's not like we're almost out of the pandemic. So I don't know how long that'll last. Please. I was just going to transition us along. Speaking of COVID impacted companies, we still have more to do when talking about Airbnb. Danny, you wrote a piece on the winners and losers, which is, I think, my favorite parts of an S1 <laughs> other than risk factors. So tell us what you learned. Yeah, I mean, we covered, well, not me, uh, but two of you who jumped the gun and took over the equity shot on, on Tuesday when uh, Airbnb's S1 dropped. Some of us were writing up hard-hitting journalism. <laughs> Others ran straight for the microphone like any yeah, good well, media if, personality. Uh, some of us actually check our Slack occasionally. <laughs> they might find out when things are happening. But instead of they put it on a different computer screen and never look at it, Danny, then maybe they'll miss things. I literally called Anyways. Danny's phone <laughs> to tell him to look at Slack. That's Aww. this guy. Anyways, Danny, back to you. I wonder, you know, you might be on my block phone numbers list, but nonetheless, on Airbnb, um, you know, obviously a huge IPO. We've been waiting a long time for this. There are a couple of big stories. I mean, first of all, what was nuts to me is there weren't actually that many winners. I mean, this, this is a major company. It's hard to value because we don't, we don't really know how the market's going to value this. Uh, Airbnb has hit a peak of like 35 to 40 billion on the, on the private markets. It's declined by half this year. Its revenue has sort of recovered. I actually have no idea what the company's valued, and that makes it harder to sort of say what people's stakes are worth. But nonetheless, I, I think the top line story is first, the founders of the company, Brian Chesky, Nathan, Joe Gevia, own a whopping 42% of the company at IPO together. Now, we talk a lot about, you know, founder ownership. You know, we've seen them as low as one or 2%. Sometimes when there's fewer founders, you can see a little bit more ownership. It's just so rare to see three founders all owning somewhere between 14 and 16% of the company at yep. IPO. Those stakes together, uh, depending on where on that valuation range they are, are somewhere between two and a half and five billion dollars. That just makes me feel very, very poor. But Danny, when we turn to the uh, the venture capital side of this, Sequoia seems to be the biggest winner, looking at about a fifteen point eight percent stake. That'll get diluted a little bit in the actual IPO itself, but that's kind of the pre-IPO number. And then going down the list, it really drops off fast. Back to your point about there not being that many winners. Founders Fund five percent, DST two point seven, and then. Silver Lake, Sixth Street, and a few others are all under 1%. So really, it's like the founders, Sequoia, a little bit for Founders Fund, and then just some slivers for other people, which is not what I expected to see, frankly. I thought it was going to be more tilted towards capital, frankly. Well, I, I think there are two you know, major stories here. One is Sequoia did invest very early in the company. So when you're looking at yep. multiple uninvested capital, I mean, Sequoia is just going to blow the rest of the team out of the water. When you look at the share prices, those early shares were worth something in the pennies, right? Like the first shares are worth something like one and three pennies. 
the last round was done, I believe, at like $51 and change. So one of the stories, the reason why these founders held on to their equity, they're all the reason why everyone else doesn't have a lot of percentage ownership, is that the value of this company just skyrocketed in, in the teens, right? When you're looking at 2012 to 2015, this was not a company that had to go through multiple slog rounds. I mean, it just jumped to unicorn status super early, and all those early dilutive rounds just disappeared. Founders Fund spread it over across three funds. Some of that was at growth, so they'll have less of a, a return on investment. And then most everyone else came in at the growth stage. So, I mean, they're going to have nice returns. No one's complaining about hundreds of millions of dollars coming into the bank account, but they put a lot of money into the company too. So I, I think this is a, a huge win for the kind of growth model. You know, three, four X in a couple of years is nothing to sneeze at. But then again, for what is probably one of the blockbuster IPOs of the last two, three years, it's not a great story for a lot of VCs. Yeah, I agree, I agree with that. But uh, before we move on, I want to just bring up something that was really, really fun. So w when I was parsing through the uh, the Airbnb S1, like a child in a candy store with a $50 bill, it, it was really interesting to look at kind of like how fast Airbnb grew at scale and then also how fast it was hit by COVID and then how fast it recovered. So just if you go to the actual IPO filing and look at its 2017 revenue, which was, you know, 2.56 billion, that's a lot of revenue flat out. But then 2018, it was 3.65. And then in 2019, it was 4.8. I mean, that kind of like just insistent, large revenue growth at huge scale is why Airbnb was worth so very much money. It's important to keep in mind how impressive this company was. You know, it's 2018, that loss was only like 16, 17 million dollars. So it almost hit profitability, well expanding. 2019, it ran into some issues. And then of course, 2020. So what does 2020 look like for a company that deals with travel? Well, it's a mess. Um, Airbnb, I think kind of knew that everyone was going to be like, what happened with COVID? So up top, they put a bunch of information about like gross bookings per quarter. And they also did some monthly data. And so it was pretty useful to kind of dig through in kind of like 2019, they were doing between, you know, like, I don't know, eight and a half and $10 billion a quarter in kind of gross bookings for its platform that fell to 3.2 billion in the second quarter of this year. So that's how big of a gut punch it was. And if you drill in a little bit more deeply into the monthly data, there's two months, March and April of this year, when their gross bookings, which is bookings minus cancellations, actually went negative, which is a shocking thing to see at a company at that scale. So I think that's why they panicked and began to really worry about what their business might look like. If this kept up, they would have had no business at all. And then it, it shoots back up, but notably Airbnb is still, I think, a little bit down from its year ago level. So a very impressive return to form, but not to 100%. And Danny, you and I were talking about this a couple of weeks ago. How much did local travel, how much did longer stays help them? The answer is a lot, but not quite enough to fill the whole gap. So I'm going to be like yourself, very, very excited to see how this prices in a couple of weeks. I, I think the message here is just resilience. You know, this is the power of a marketplace. This is the power of brand. A, a global pandemic stopped Airbnb for about nine weeks. <laughs> and then it was back to form. And look, you know, it's not the only story that's doing super well because of, of COVID-19. When you look over at Robinhood, it, they also have done apparently extremely well. And then just totally top flat out, like what, what happened there? Okay, so Natasha, uh, you have, were not around really as, a, as an investor when like you had to pay like eight bucks for a trade, right? No. What? I don't even know what to say to that. Is that a trick question? This is like a Gen X question. Back in my day, we had to walk uphill both ways to the stockbroker in order to get, you know, a $25 commission trade. I got my paper certificate folded in my wallet and I carried no, I my not, Disney Alex, shares Alex, wherever I, I went. <laughs> All right. So what I was, I was trying to draw a connection between uh, the decline in the price of trading and how many trades were seen in the market was kind of where I was going with that. Um, 
The point is Robinhood has really benefited from an enormous explosion in the amount of trades that are being executed because as we all know, they sell their order flow or they essentially they route orders through certain brokers and that lets them generate some revenue. So even if they don't charge Natasha $8 for a trade, they make a couple of pennies to up to like maybe even 50 cents a trade and that's how they generate a huge bulk of their revenues. Now, we care because we can actually track their payment for order flow information because it has to be disclosed. So you can do this for E-Trade, you can do it for Robinhood. I put a bunch of these into a post that I wrote in case you want to go through and look at the numbers yourself. But what they've done is give us a lens into how fast Robinhood has really grown. And in Q1, the payment for order flow revenue from Robinhood was just over $90 million in one quarter. But that's a serious amount of money. And then Q2, that exploded to around $180 million. And I say around because I've, I, I've pulled all the numbers, I've spreadsheeted them, I've gotten two different numbers, and then I fact check with the guys over at the block and they got a slightly different number in between mine. So it's about 180. I don't know why I can't add, but it's, it's right <laughs> around there. I swear to God, I'm going to cry if I have to do that math again. And then Q3, which is the news. In Q3, it was just about 183 million. So after this explosion of growth from Q1 to Q2, more than doubling, essentially, it kind of flatlined. Now, we don't know about their subscription revenue, their revenue from interest, and a lot of other kind of factors that go into the revenue mix. But certainly, it appears that the hyper growth on a sequential quarterly basis has slowed, even though I'm sure on a year-over-year basis, Robinhood is still very impressive. And Bloomberg broke that they might go public uh, early next year. So we're thinking about it. Let's, let's stop with the late stage. Let's pivot around and talk about... Oh, it's late stage again, actually. Anyways, we're going to move to EdTech. And that's what you get if you don't scroll in the notes doc fast enough when you're trying to make a segue. There's been a couple of big EdTech rounds, a lot of valuation growth, Natasha. What's going on in EdTech and how is it still this hot and active? Jokes aside, I do think EdTech is now finally excited to be in the late stage category. And we're going to be seeing really a lot of hopefully IPOs in the next two or three years. Most recently, one of the contenders is Udemy, which recently got a 50 million round led by Tencent. Um, earlier this year, it actually raised as well, valued at $2 billion, And now with this new round, it's valued at $3.25 billion. So huge bump within the same year. And it really underscores a lot of what we've known and been talking about, about the need for online education. They have 35 million students in more than 130,000 online courses. Natasha, my problem is that I can't keep them straight. Uh, I, Udacity, <laughs> Udemy, Duolingo, to me, they're actually all the same company with different names. So just for the sake of my sanity, can you give me a, a riff on what each one of them does? Yeah. So I, you know, as someone who covers ed tech, I also consistently mix up Udacity and Udemy. So I consider them in like two different groups. There's Udemy, Udacity, and Coursera, which are kind of massive open online course providers. The thing to watch with Udemy, which they kind of hinted at this, this portion, is how much they're going to give up on trying to be an open online course provider and really sell to enterprises, which is the route that Udacity has taken to actually achieve growth. Enterprises will pay more. They'll pay on behalf of their employees versus convincing the world to take online courses. And so I think that's where MOOCs are at this point. While we see the direct-to-consumer language learning apps, Duolingo is obviously the leader in this category, but there are a few other competitors also benefiting from the aspirational learning. When I last talked to Lewis, which is Duolingo CEO, he was saying that, you know, success for us is not necessarily making everyone fluent in French, but it is making them as smart as they were if they took it in high school. I, I think one of the you know lessons, you know, talking about Udemy, um, going the enterprise route is, you know, one of the biggest exits of all time in EdTech was Lynda.com, which sold to LinkedIn a couple of years ago for $1.5 billion. And that was the first sign that like there was real money in EdTech, you know, it really sent a signal that you could build a unicorn in the space. 
It doesn't surprise me that Udemy is going the same direction. You know, one of the challenges has been consumers don't pay for education, at least in the West, which say something. As an example, we got the statistic from Duolingo, but they're going to do 180 million in bookings from just 3% of its current users, right? So they have an extremely fine group of people who pay them a lot. Those users are basically the Peloton of a firm. You know, the, the good news is, is if you can find these quote unquote whales, as they're called in the gaming industry, you know, there are people who will pay thousands of dollars for their education. My guess is they're also going to make a lot of money in their lifetime. And I mean, Danny, you're, you're on point. I think the big question for all these ed tech companies going forward is how do we diversify our revenue? Duolingo has been experimenting a lot with an English test in, in Asia. Udemy with the enterprise product, Udacity pivoting to its enterprise product full time. They need to be not have all their ducks in one basket, which is true for all companies. But I think in education, especially with the COVID bump, they have to really, you know, start making some some bets and hopefully the new capital will help them do so. You know, the, the enterprise shift isn't a huge surprise because lynda.com, now LinkedIn Learning, is targeted at the enterprise. And I think if I recall our Okta dashboard, I think we have access to LinkedIn Learning. I we, have, go- we have lynda.com, no we have Safari Books Online. I don't we do have, anything. Have, <clears throat> if you want to learn how to use Photoshop one video at a time, you can do so. But but I want to talk about one more round because I think we... we I hate to be honest, but like, you know, Udemy, all these guys, I mean, it's literally video delivery as a service, right? And and what gets me excited is the ability to use VR and other more exciting technologies to, to deliver ed tech products. So I want to talk uh, about transfer, which is spelled without the E. So that's T-R-A-N-S-F-R. And we won't make a joke about it. Yeah. <laughs> not, not in the headline, because we want you not to listen the to the show. We've been, we've been yelled at by, by fellow <laughs> editors about removing all vowels from our headlines. But Natasha, you covered the, the company this week, and there were some fireworks there. Yeah, so Transfer raised a $12 million Series A by Firework Ventures, which is a woman-led VC firm founded by former partners at Owl and Social Capital. Transfer's main product is virtual reality to upskill trade-based workers, they are applying VR in ed tech, and this doesn't happen enough. And I really believe I manifested caring about this because I was waiting for more VR to enter my inbox. The only other example we have is Labster using VR to help recreate science class. But VR really works in ed tech when you are trying to at scale train a bunch of people to do things that require expensive tools, a lot of space. Why not put it on a screen? and help companies save some money while doing so. And that's exactly what Transfer is hoping to do. I think it's really great. I'm, I, I still remain a, a long-term VR bull. And so for me, seeing this company raising $12 million, which is a, you know, a, a pretty good size Series A, it's not crazy, it's also not small, but it's a good amount of money, uh, they're going to be able to take this pretty far. And it's going to build demand for VR hardware, it's going to build demand for VR developers. It's just another positive thing in the direction I think I see the market going. And so I, I'm excited about it. And also, I looked through the images of like their interface. It looks pretty cool. As good as being underneath a truck if you're learning how to change a thing? No. But is it going to get you prepped to go do that and be skilled up faster? Hell yes. And that's great. And we're seeing a lot of alternatives to higher ed or vocational schools get funding now. And we'll talk about it a little bit more in our special ed tech equity episode on Thanksgiving next week. I think there's a lot to come in in replacing the four-year degree the, the high school experience even. So more to come. Yeah, especially if we don't end up canceling a lot of student debt. But let's turn to a round that I've been excited about ever since Danny told me it was coming. There's a company that is dealing with, Danny, we might call it passing away. What a year for that. So tell us all about trust and will. Obviously, it's a little bit macabre, but estate planning is a growth industry in 2020. Uh, more and more people are thinking through their end of life directives, <laughs> everything from trusts and wills, 
to advance medical directives and, and related. And so the, uh, a startup, Trust and Will, who I covered, I want to say a year or two ago, who had raised a couple million dollars in a seed Series A kind of setup, raised $15 million this year, a Series B led by Jackson Square Ventures and a bunch of other folks, bring its total funding to $23 million. You know, they, they basically do digital wills. And, and believe it or not, this is not a thing. It is actually a state-by-state -state thing. It started in Nevada. Nevada was the first state to allow digital wills just about, I want to say, two years ago. And, and Trust and Will actually executed the first digital will in Nevada. They have since expanded to a couple other states, including Florida, which hey you might, uh, you know, surprise, surprise, is really important in the estate planning industry when it comes to, to this market. And so, uh, you know, Trust and Will has had a lot of tailwinds on its side in 2020 as people think more and more about all the logistics there. And with COVID, you know, sort of enforcing social distance, the idea of going to an office with your lawyers to fill out paperwork is also really tough. So for those states that allow digital wills, trust and will is sort of your destination of choice. I think it's, it's, it's macabre to talk about this, but also financial literacy in the country is so low that I think anything we can do to make people make better choices about short end of life stuff, but also just anything involving money and own property is good. So like, I, I want to make jokes because it is the middle of a pandemic and we're talking about death, but also like fundamentally, I get the business. I think it's a good idea. and I hope people use it. And one thing I learned dealing with this myself is in some cases, you actually have to update this stuff regularly. It expires if you don't actually do stuff. For instance, if you sign an advanced medical directive, if it's more than five years out of date, you go back to the defaults of your hospital of choice. So you actually have to refile on a regular basis to prove that you still intend to do the exact same thing you did the first time around. So, so trust and will will take, you know, charge of your trust will make sure it stays up to date, handle any estate planning changes in the law. All estate planning is handled at the local level. So every state has different laws. They change all the time. They'll keep track of those and, and keep it up to date. Another company to watch in this area is Willful, started by Erin Burry, based in Canada. And so I talked to her a little bit during the beginning of the pandemic, ended up not writing about it because, it, again, it felt too dark. But they have been doing some great work giving out free plans to healthcare workers. And I think it just underlines that it's, you know, very much becoming a, a more comfortable conversation. Um, as much as we hate it, it's becoming something that people are, are willing to talk about. And, and uh, there's actually a third competitor in the space who I argue has the best name on the planet, which is freewill.com. That's you pretty good. You got to admit, that's pretty damn good. That is pretty good. Damn. Okay, fine. <laughs> but look, if all this death is challenging your sensibility, let's talk about Zen. So Zen Business raised a 55 million Series B and what they do is they handle all the paperwork. Again, it's all local laws. I mean, it's amazing how much money there is in like processing local like regulation laws. If you want to start a, a small business anywhere in the country, you need to form an LLC or a C Corp or an S Corp or a public benefit corp, blah, blah, blah. You got to get licenses, occupational licensing by state. In some states like Louisiana, famously, florists have to get licensed and, and other states have all their peculiar rules. So Zen Business sort of figures out all of your regulatory requirements. And then on top of that, they're adding in growth functionality. So they'll help you build a website. They'll help you grow that website. And they also have banking services. They actually did a, a roll-up of a, a company with a fund that we're about to talk about called Joust. Founder of Joust is now uh, SVP of product at, at Zen Business. What was interesting for me, though, is that this company has expanded extremely rapidly. I covered them in 2018 when they raised $4.5 million. I covered them Oof. in 2019 when they had raised $15 million. This year, they raised $55 million. And I got to say, like, I'm on the wrong trajectory of my career path because that is the <laughs> career path you want in your life. But the, the Wait a minute. Now, Are you saying that this wasn't your goal in life, Danny? It wasn't a podcast with your two friends every week? I, I feel like I could have done that and also raised $55 million <laughs> on this side. Fair enough. But, but with Zen Business, uh, 80,000 businesses have now launched the platform. Austin-based, 150 employees that are working remote and have already grown 100% this year. We're not even done with the year. 
And and the founder, I'm um, talking about Airbnb, but the founder was the founder of HomeAway way back in the uh. day, which sold to, I want to say, uh, Expedia or one of the other travel uh, sites a couple of years ago in a, a pretty big transaction. So this, this is his second big company, clearly on its way. And uh, just about the money that was actually raised, it was led by Cathay Innovation, which is not a firm I think everyone knows. But Cathay Innovation, I, I've talked to them a couple of times. They're kind of affiliated with Cafe Capital. So it's kind of like a private equity fund and an associated venture capital fund. And their entire idea is that they share information back and forth. And so theoretically, they can kind of see around corners a bit because they have more eyes out around the world. Don't know if it works, but that's kind of their pitch. And so it's fun to see them kind of crop up here, leading really an outsized Series B, Danny. I mean, $55 million, even for 2020, is a pretty big second priced round. Well, as crazy as it sounds, I mean, you would think that new business formation would go down. But what Zen Business' CEO, Ross Burdoff, told me by phone he said that actually, you know, as more and more businesses have had to go online, they actually had to figure out a lot more things that they didn't have in place before. You know, in the old days, you just put up a, a shingle on your, on your, you know, floor plan and you're, you're sort of in business now. You have to have an online website, more licensing, got to get tax IDs, potentially multiple states if you have multiple workers now working remotely. It just got became a lot more complicated. And so they, they've had a huge uptick, even though what might appear to be a tough economy, you would think the business formation would go down. You know, in some ways, I expected this only because of all the small and medium-sized businesses now needing to digitize operations. I think that's like been flooding my inbox recently. And, you know, it's funny how the business in a box tools have gone from trying to help startups as the pure play to like, let's help just businesses like traditional old businesses. I think we're seeing more and more SMB focused plays work. I mean, for the longest time in the venture capital world, it was the, the kind of like, you know, ed tech is bad and don't go after SMBs. Because they're low ACV, they have high churn, they're hard to find, they're hard to close. They're like an enterprise level deal difficulty with none of the value. But instead, we're seeing, you know, this company do quite well. Podium is still doing well over in Utah, focused on SMBs and kind of even single shop proprietorships. It's, it's fun to see things be wrong that were conventional wisdom, because that should be the crux of venture capital, as opposed to more uh, conservative funds. But let's talk about a new fund, Danny. Let's talk about Financial Venture Studio, which closed... Half of a Series A for its first fund, looks like. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, look, you know, we're talking about markets that people don't want to do. It's like EdTech, SMBs. And then a couple of years ago, it was actually FinTech. I mean, FinTech was a no-go zone. I can't imagine Why? that. it's super regulated. <laughs> I mean, it's hard to believe, but it, you know, super legal, super regulated, hard to, yeah. you know, beat incumbents. How do you go up against JP Morgan Chase? And then, you know, over the last couple of years, people sort of discovered there's a huge market here. Gee, there's trillions of dollars processed through the financial system. There must be some way to make money. So, you know, <laughs> one of the major leaders in that space over the last couple of years was, was an organization called the Financial Solutions Lab. And um, they've backed a lot of the major companies in the space, companies like Digit. The, the founders and the kind of the organizers and partners there, Ryan Falvey and Tri uh, Tyler Griffin, actually spun out in 2018 to build their own fund. The Financial Solutions Lab was sponsored by a nonprofit funded by JP Morgan Chase. They've now raised their first debut kind of pre-seed fund of $13 million for something they're calling the Financial Venture Studio. They've already made over the last two years as they're sort of rolling the fund together, 18 early investments across sort of three cohort companies like Everlands, Anvil, Roger, and Honeybee. And they've also backed a couple of late stage rounds, you know, small chunks into some of the companies they backed at the Financial Solutions Lab. They write very small checks, the 100K checks is the first check, according to Ryan. You know, they really kind of roll up their sleeves and try to connect you into these ecosystems. And so... You know, in their line, they do these small pre-seed rounds and you get up to speed and then they go straight to Series A. And so their goal is to get you a couple of those early design customers and the financial banks and institutions, lock in different consumers, and, and you're on your merry way. And so they're trying to skip that kind of seed, post-seed, pre-Series A, all that stuff. 
by just getting you the traction you need to sort of say, you look, there's something really here, large here. And now we need lawyers, bankers, accountants, engineers, data scientists, and we need $25 million at that A. I made a joke about the size of their fund, 13 million. I want to point out that I was just kidding. And I, the reason why I want to not be a jerk about this is we've actually seen early stage funding in the fintech world go down. And I've been writing about kind of like the Q3 venture capital world a lot lately because I was really curious about what shook out of the pandemic's early cycles. And one thing that we saw was actually, you know, fintech funding in North America and Europe was up in Q3, according to PitchBook, to $8.9 billion, which is up $1.3 billion just from Q2 of this year. But only 414 deals happened in the third quarter, which was the lowest since Q3 2017. So we've seen the dollars go up and the rounds go down. It has been the story of venture capital kind of broadly for the last couple of years. The rich get richer. But what about the seed stage? Well, what you need is some smart people with a properly sized checkbook to their check size to go out there and really seed the ground in the sector. And that appears to be what this is. And so like we joke about the Series B from before being 55 million, what's a $13 million fund going to do? Well, maybe a lot. And so that's exciting to me. And I think not all venture has to be big. It doesn't have to be the Udemy, Udacity rounds. It can be these kind of like accelerant checks that really turns me from an idea into the possibility of a company. As we saw with Airbnb, with the, with the Sequoia round, right? It's all about multiples on invested capital. And I think if you invest super early in fintech, you know, you can get very good valuations. And then once you've solved a lot of the challenging problems, it's amazing how quickly these prices jump up. You know, we saw this with a firm. I mean, it just, it skyrockets in value. And so if you're not in one of those first early rounds, you know, you might be going from a 10 post or 20 post or 50 post up to a 3 billion post in like two rounds. Suddenly, you know, you have to put 200 million in your own 2% or 3% of the company. So I, I just think you have to get in super early. That's their strategy. We have one last thing to talk about, which is virtual HQs. Natasha, you wrote a, a huge deep dive on that this week. Yeah, I hung out in a couple virtual HQs over the past few weeks for hours with three companies that everyone should know about, Branch, Gather, and Huddle. They are all just basically creating video games for a broader audience to work and socialize. You can bump into each other. As you kind of toggle towards someone, they get louder. As you go away, they get quieter. Maybe you guys as gamers know this, but to me, spatial technology was really fun to play with for the first time. And their bet is that similar to how Hopin has been a multi-billion dollar valued business, they think that the coronavirus has changed the game on how serious people will take online existences and they think it can become mainstream. So highly recommend everyone to read my piece because it's a, it's a quirky bunch of Gen Z creators creating something I think pretty cool. This blends beautifully into my generally bullish view of VR because I think all of these things are going to be cool on a desktop environment, pretty poor on a laptop, but better on a big screen with the PC and so forth, and even better in a VR environment. The only thing I'll say is branch... Gather and Huddle sound like three Neanderthal names. Like branch, <laughs> Gather, Huddle, Fire, Mammoth. I don't know. Like it just that that's what comes to mind. I don't know why they all have such thematic names. Uh, guys, but we got to stop. We are really low on time. Uh, this has been a scream. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in to the Airbnb show. Sorry that Danny couldn't make it. Maybe he'll check Slack next time. And uh, we'll talk to you all Monday morning. Goodbye. <laughs>